0: friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. Um, this morning's homily is we're doing a series on desiring the best. And one of the things that makes us human is, is that we are desiring creatures. Um, that You think, well, aren't animals desiring? Not to the degree we are. Um, our desires are very important to us. When our desires are not met, um, they can be devastating. And when our desires are fulfilled, uh, we have rich, full, um, embodied lives. Um, Animals are not that way. Sometimes we desire things that live beyond us. That makes us very different. Um, And what Nike and I have been talking about is our desires. And what may surprise you is that many of our desires, many of your desires, are not located inside of you. Many of your desires are actually located in other people. But we're not even aware of that. Um, and you parents know that. If you've got two kids, you got one kid has, if there's a toy that one kid wants and goes to that, the other kid will follow the desires of his brother or sister and want what that kid has. And we think, oh, that's just children. That's not kids. That's every human being. Very often, our desires are located in other people. And so we're going to talk about our desires this morning, especially about what do you desire um, about your faith? And sometimes the things that we desire for our faith may not be as healthy as other things. So we'll look at that this morning. So from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 19. This comes from the, um, the Christian standard version of the scriptures. This is the prophecy of Isaiah and the statements of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7, verses 10 to 19. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you try also the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring you on you your people and on your father's house such a time as he has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. On that day, the Lord will whistle to flies at the farthest streams of the Nile and to the bees in the land of Assyria. And all of them will come and settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks and all the thorn bushes and in all the water holes. Now from Matthew chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people From their sins. Now all this took place to fulfil what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angels had commanded him. He married her, but not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and the intentions of all of our hearts and minds together be pleasing to you, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. Back in 2011 and 2015, I got to go to Cuba several times to work with, I went to Havana and I stayed in the barrio with a leaders of some Christian leaders called Los Pinos Nuevos um, and um, the New Pines for those who want to know what Los Pinos Nuevos means. And I stayed with the, uh, the leader of the New Pines, which is a house church movement in Havana, and they had a large seminary in Matanzas, and I got to teach at the seminary and go back and forth between Havana and um, Matanzas. Matanzas is where Che Guevara is from. In fact, when Che Guevara started the revolution, he went right through the seminary, and I know some people that are still alive that say, oh, we remember Che when he came down from the, the mountains. And so I thought, gosh, I can, this is just living history, being with these people. Um, but when I was there, I was intrigued by the beauty of the Spanish spoken by the Cuban people. And I'm a big fan of Cuban music. Love Cuban music. I, I do. Hector Ochoa, Campai Segundo, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I love Cuban music. It's the happiest sad music you get. Like, it's so sad, but it's so happy at the same time. How do they do it? I love Cuban music. But the one thing that uh, that struck me was how a word that they used in Cuba and a word that's used here... Claro, C-L-A-R-O, means I understand, or I'm with you, claro. The way they used it in Cuba was different than the way it's used here. In Cuba, when people say claro, it means I'm with you, I trust you. Yeah, I trust what you're saying. When claro is spoken here, mostly, I think, you all correct me, but I think what I've heard when Cuba use claro here is like, oh, I understand, yes, yes, of course, yes, that's certain, so, Claro, as it's used here, is more a reflection of I agree with you. But Claro in Cuba is more I trust you. I'm with you. Keep going. Amen, sister. Amen, brother. Isn't it interesting? And the reason I'm bringing that up is that when it comes to faith, I think um, as Christians, we have to have more of the Cuban version of Claro than. The North American view of Claro. When it comes to faith, our faith has to consist more of, I trust you, God, and not so much of, I understand. Because if our faith is built on what we understand, we're only going to grasp things that are within our understanding. What if there's certain truths about God that are bigger than our understanding? What does that do to our faith? Makes it very small. Does that make sense? So we're going to look at St. Joseph. And his idea of faith. And I think I, I'd label this message desiring trust is stronger than certainty. Um, think about your faith for a second. So, if I were to ask you a question, I'll ask you a question. Um, what do you want your faith to be? What do you want it to be? I think for all of us, a couple of things. We want it to be durable, we want it to last, right? like a good pair of Rockport shoes. They may be ugly, but you'll never wear them out. Rockport kind of figured that out, that their shoes never wear out, and they, they made less quality shoes after a while because you buy one pair of Rockports and they're good till your grandkids. You can give them to your grandchildren. And, they're, they're like a, and they realize that's not good. We have to make less quality shoes. Um, so, but we want like Rockport faith. We want it durable, right? We want it durable. We also want it to be honest. We don't want a phony faith. So we want an uh, authentic, we want it to be authentic, we want it to be durable, yes. Well, those are, that's what we want our faith to do. But what are the actual ingredients of your faith? If you had a faith recipe, like um, Mamma's buttermilk biscuits, what goes into it? What are the things in your faith? I think a lot of us would say, well, beliefs is an ingredient, Right? Um, historicity. It's got to be rooted in history. So it's not just in some... It has to be historic. has to have certain beliefs. I think those are the things we would start with. I think what many of us would leave out, which is I think the key ingredient to faith, is the word, right after the word desiring. It's the word trust. Because our faith is in a person. And the best thing that we can do to someone if we want to get to know them is trust them. Because if we trust them, that means we're open to learning who they really are, even if it surprises us. Sometimes we value certainty over trust when it comes to faith. And I think that's a mistake. There's a book called um, On Being Certain, written in 2009 by a neurologist. That means he's a science nerve brain guy, okay? It's called On Being Certain, Believing You're Right Even When You're Not. That's the subtitle. And this book, written by a guy named Burton, um, came up with a surprising realization. He said, certainty really is not just one thing, it's two things. Certainty has, there's the content of certainty, which is um, knowledge. And then there's the feeling of being certain, which is the feeling of knowing. So it involves two things the content of knowledge, and then the feeling of being certain. And so here's how this works in real time. Have you ever had a conversation where you're talking to a friend or a family member and they say, oh, what's what's her mom's name? And you say, I met her. I know what it is. So you have the content of knowledge, but you forgot her name. And so the conversation, so what happens is, but you know it. It's somewhere between here and your left foot. You just have to access it. Because you met them five times. Oh, I know, they're... Yeah, they're 49er fans. They're not even cowboy fans. I know that. And and she drives a station wagon. How many people drive a station wagon? I know that about. What's her name? Oh, oh, oh. so there's a content of knowledge, which is lost. But you had a feeling that you were certain. And because you have confidence in that feeling, you're going to go back and catalog it. Does that make sense? And then all of a sudden, like 10 minutes later, Sarah, her name is Sarah. Remember that? I got it. That's right. I knew I had it. And so what happens, though, we tend to think of certitude or certainty as content of knowledge. What certainty really is, it's a feeling of being certain. In other words, it's more of an emotion, certainty, than it is a rational agreement with something. Did you ever think about that? Certainty is far more emotional, and if you think that's not true, um, have you you ever argued religion with people that are certain? Oh, How did that go? How did that conversation go? How did that Thanksgiving go? Because we think we're dealing with rationality. What we're dealing with, we have great feelings about being right. You ever argue politics with people? Religion and politics are highly emotive realities. And the certainty that people have is rooted more not in rationality, but rooted in emotions. So sometimes I think certainty gets in the way of a growing faith. Let's think of Joseph for a second. Here's a guy that was a righteous man, the Bible tells us, was married to his sweetheart, a young woman, by the name of Mary. He had knowledge that God's Messiah will come. And God's Messiah will save Israel. Then he gets told by his fiancée, and in those days, if you're engaged, it is as though you're married already. When the engagement period starts, you need a divorce to be unengaged, even if the wedding hasn't taken place. That's why it sounds so strange, but like, why does he need a divorce? They're not even married yet. Because once you're engaged, it's on. And you have to get a divorce from the engagement, which is like getting a divorce from the marriage. He has faith in God. He knows the Messiah is coming. Then all of a sudden, his teenage wife says, I am pregnant with God's kid. Oh, really? I will quietly put you away with a divorce. Because Joseph is quite certain that God would never do something so foolish as to bring his own kid into the world. As baby. Does that make sense? He had a kind of certitude. He was certain. And God said, oh, honey, to Joseph, trust is far more important than certitude. I'm going to send you one of my friends, an angel, in a dream. Go on down there, Michael, or whatever the angel's name was. Theodore, Margaret, we don't know. Or angel number five, whatever you want to. And the angel said, honey, uh, Mary's telling the truth. And she's going to have a baby. You need to trust her more than your suititude. You need to trust me. I come from God. I am a miracle right in front of you. You need to trust that. And you need to trust God. Oh, by the way, this was prophesied in Isaiah. And we look back and say, well, certainly that's reasonable. Can you imagine hearing that the first time? You know, prophets say a lot of things. The prophet just said in Isaiah 7, he said, God's going to take a bunch of bees and he's going to smite people with bees, and the Messiah is going to eat curds—that's cottage cheese and honey—all his life. I don't ever remember Jesus eating cottage cheese and honey the whole time. Prophet says stuff like that. Prophet said a virgin's going to give birth. Yeah, prophets are—they have great imaginations. Oh, you're going to take that one literally? Oh, that's rich. Oh yeah, we are. That one's literal. Uh, really? Really? Okay, I will trust you see the difference i'll trust you trust is so much better than certitude because when you trust someone you're open to changing your mind or as one of my favorite theologians would say and i think it's becoming one of Nica's favorite theologians by way of me because he's weird to read right tf torrance who's a scientist nerd and a theology nerd oh think about that for a second How would you like to be at a lecture where he's a scientist, theologian, trained like at Oxford and Edinburgh? Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. So he's weird. He doesn't know how to end a sentence. But this is what he says that's so important. He says, if you you seek to know someone or something, the object or the person you seek to know determines how you are to know them. I just saved you money on counseling just right there. Okay, and here's why. Do you want to know your kid? Listen to your kid. Mom, this is me. Dad, this is me. Well, that's not what I thought it was. It's not. If you want to know me, I get to detect. This is who I am. You want to know your spouse? Honey, listen to me. This is who I am. Make sense? You want to know your dog? Listen to your dog. Some dogs are really smart and will boss you around. You have to boss them around. You ever watch Caesar, the dog whisperer? That's all he does. He does Tom Torrance theology. Listen to your dog. Your dogs are really smart or your dog's really dumb. Lead your dog or don't let your dog lead you. Because listen to your dog. It's the same thing. Trust is letting the person that you want to know determine how they're known. And God said, I want you to know that I love humanity so much, I'm going to be born of a woman. And it may not be what you think it is. Now, this is where Matthew's so clever. Did you guys ever think that the Gospel of Matthew, it begins and ends with Joseph and Mary, and it ends with Joseph and Mary? They're different Joseph and Marys, but it's like this great movie. It begins with Jesus, Joseph and Mary, Joseph the father, or the stepdad, and Mary. And Jesus is in the womb of Mary, and then, then he comes and gives life to the world. And then the Gospel of Matthew ends with two Marys, Mary Magdalene, and Mary of Cleopas, and the other Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And this time Jesus is also encased, but not in the womb of his mother, but he's encased in a rock, and he's dead. But he's the firstborn of the dead. Matthew does that on purpose. He begins with Joseph and Mary, he ends with Joseph and Mary, but also he begins with this whole list of people that predated Jesus. And he includes women that people think that they know, they're certain about them, but their certainty is wrong. He lists the genealogy of Jesus. And he begins with, uh, you know, Adam, and then he goes down to Rahab. Remember the name Rahab? Oh, wasn't she a harlot? And that's a King James Version way of saying um, a sex worker or a prostitute. Yes, she was. But you know what else she was, more importantly? She was a believer in the Lord. She's part of holy history. She's the one that gave birth to the one That Ruth married she's one of God's kids you are certain you know her you don't know her at all you know what she really is she's a follower of the lamb of God she's a believer what about Tamar oh we know about her she's a hussy too oh you think so you're wrong you have certitude about her being a hussy she's not a hussy she's abused by these guys She was abused by Judah. Judah, Jesus comes from the line of Judah. And and she was a righteous woman, and she did what she had to to stay alive. And her sons later gave birth to to the Lord Jesus, that that family line. Well, it's also David's had had a child by the wife of Uriah. Well, she's kind of a hussy too. No, she's not. The king advanced on her. And what are you to do when the king of Israel says, let's go on a date and more than a date? It was, well, that was wrong what David did. So we think we have certainty about who she is. And our certainty is wrong. Trust God. And then Matthew gets to Mary. About all these women that had these unusual births. And we think we know about them, we think we're certain about them. Then he gets to Mary. You think you're certain about this one? Wow, well, you're not. You know what's cool about the Holy Scriptures? Sometimes the Bible reads us more than we read the Bible. Sometimes we're just certain about certain things. And God goes, no, you're wrong. If you want to know me, let me tell you who I am. Trust me more than your certitude. Because sometimes when you're certain, you can believe you're right. Even though you're wrong. I've learned that as an adult, I've had conversations with my youngest, Molly, and I'm glad my wife is there because Molly's a lot like me, and you guys tend to know that you have conflict with people that are more like you than unlike you. And I'll say, "Molly, that's ridiculous. That's a bad idea. I think that's what I said in my head. And she just shuts down. I said, why? And she said, you just called me stupid. I said, no, I didn't. I said, that's a bad idea. She said, no, you said you are Stupid. I said, I would never say that. Mary goes, you just said she's stupid. Wow. Oh, honey, please forgive me. I mean, I've actually had that happen. But I was certain. I had certainty. I I had a feeling that I knew. And my feeling was wrong. But I called it a fact. I called it rational. It was irrational. Emotional nonsense. I said, "Honey, please forgive me for calling you stupid. I'll try. I don't want to do that." Did I really say that? She goes, "Why do you think I shut down, dad?" "Oh man, I'm so sorry, Mo. Forgive me. Does that make sense?" So, I think what happens is that as Christians, what do you desire this Christmas in your faith? I think we should desire trust. Lord, I want to trust you. And that means even if I'm wrong, I will trust you. Yes, I want my faith to be durable. But more importantly, I trust you. And even when I don't trust you, I want to trust you. The Bible is so beautifully written that we see the frailties of the writers and how they were wrong in their certainties. And they ended up following Jesus. Joseph was pretty certain that his wife had done something wrong. She didn't. She was faithful. And he chose trust over that. You know what's so good too? That when we trust in God, even when we don't trust Him, He hangs on to us. We trust in His faithfulness more than we trust in our faith. We trust in God's faithfulness more than we trust in our own faith. And this Christmas, God says, I want to give you a gift. My faithfulness is so big that even when you don't trust me, I don't let go of you. Because when my son said, it is finished, he means it. He's got you. So trust me. Trust me. And if you trust me, and this is also what's ironic, your faith in God will change over time. You know why? Because you're growing up. And this is the challenge, and I'll just close with this. We have a very luxurious faith in the United States because we're not persecuted as Christians. We have so many different denominations. We got Baptists. We got Presbyterians. We got Roman Catholics. We got Orthodox Roman Catholics. We got Reformed Baptists. We got calvinist presbyterians we have free will presbyterians we have free will baptists we have methodists we have conservative methodists we have united methodists we have free free methodists we have uh lutherans we have uh uh uh, pentecostals we have non-denominational which is really a baptist with better genes and music and so we uh, you guys know that right it's all the same and so but but we just say it's not baptist but it is it's just that's what non-denominational is and we have all these luxuries and how do we identify ourselves as christians we identify ourselves as Christians by, well, I'm a Presbyterian. Which means, I have certainty that babies should be baptized, where you Baptists have certainty they shouldn't. Well, oh, I think we're right. Or, oh, I have certainty about predestination. We're certain about certain things. What it really means, I have great feelings about being with other Presbyterians. Or I have great feelings with being other Baptists. You know, but when you go to Qatar, or you go to Saudi Arabia, or you go to Indonesia, when you meet another Christian... Do you really care if they're Baptist? You do not care. Because they follow Jesus. They trust Jesus. And this other denominational stuff doesn't even matter. But what happens is, we have certainties about our denominational distinctions. And we confuse that with trusting in God. And our faith is so frail. You know why? Because when you're at a doctor's office with a, with a diagnosis that you have brain cancer... You never really say to yourself, huh, I'm really glad I baptize babies and they don't. I'm really glad I'm not a Lutheran and make a law gospel distinction, but I'm reformed and see the union of the covenant. Woo, that gives me such comfort right now. It's useless because we're putting all of our faith in these certainties that don't even matter without growing in our trust in God. God. I think Christians in other countries, they have a durable faith because they don't have the luxurious um, reality of distinguishing themselves from other Christians. So let's let's value trust in God more than certainty because trust in God will get us to more durable and truthful things because God is a living person and so are you. But God is so big and you're so small and I'm so small, we got to change our mind all the time to get closer to him because we get him wrong in little small ways, not big ways. Well, sometimes in big ways, but in small ways. So let's desire trust. And it's stronger than certainty in the recipe for faith. Trust in Jesus. You know why? Because he really loves you. And he wants you to know him. And he wants you to know that even when you don't trust him, He's got you. His faithfulness is that strong. He will call his name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. And even the sins of our certainty. Thank you God for that. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit. And we're thankful for the gift of trusting you. Would you give us the desire to trust you more in our desire to be certain about things, so that we can truly know you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.